0: We would turn now to Psalm 64. I'll read the whole of the chapter here, the whole psalm, and focus especially on verses 1 and 10, the bookends of the psalm, the prayer beginning and the prayer answer of the psalm, we could say, Psalm 64, 1 and 10. Subheading reads to the chief musician the Psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words... That they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded, so he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Thus far we read this word of God, Psalm 64. The first verse of which is, Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation, preserve my life from fear of the enemy. The last verse of which is, The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. The saying goes, There is nothing to fear but fear itself. It's not quite true. The psalm brings this out. There were enemies, and the psalmist certainly feared the enemies. And we have enemies, and we fear the enemies. And, of course, there's the one God we must fear. So it's not just fear itself we fear, but enemies and the one God we must fear. There is a lot of truth, however. Fear itself is a thing a great power that can prevent us from all kinds of good activities and attitudes. And the psalmist brings this out, that the fear that he fears is the fear of the enemy. He says, preserve my life from fear of the enemy, not just the enemy, but from fear of the enemy. So indeed, he's emphasizing that there is a problem with fear itself. There is something about it. There is, in fact, something we have to consider closely this evening and prayerfully. I know I do, and I hope you understand that as we bring the Word of God to bear upon this problem of fear and the fear of foes, we will see it applies to us. We are those who can fear anything at the drop of a hat or a sound in the night or a bump that there's a bump in the night. And we need to learn that there is a God to be feared, which fear expels and dispels all the other fears, and it must. There must be, where there's the fear of God, no other fears. Not really. Indeed, the the proverbist in Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap that we fall into, but those who trust in the Lord shall be safe. Besides, we're not given a spirit of fear, but we're given a spirit of fo- uh, power and love and of a sound mind. This is the New Testament gospel recorded for us in 2 Timothy 1 in verse 7, where God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that. New Testament text could be said to be the counterpart of this prayer that the psalmist would be delivered from fear. And so I want to ask you the question, does anyone need an antidote to fear? To the fear of anything, to the fear of anyone, to the fear of especially enemies. Does anyone here need the word of God and its antidote to fear that is found in our text. There's God's word here, and the outcome of the prayer of someone who prays, like a righteous man like David, to be delivered from fear itself is such a good thing that we can conclude those who make the prayer with the psalmist that the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him and all the upright in heart shall glory or boast in God. And that righteous one and those righteous one would include us. So let's consider this text for a life free from man fearing. And I want us also to consider that this applies to all kinds of fears that we might have, all kinds of anxieties, all kinds of problems we have with the future, with things, with relationships, with church things and family things and every kind of thing. A fear, uh, a life free from man fearing, a life free from all sorts of fearing is what we're aiming at today and we trust that God will use his word to keep us and to bless us. So we want to consider a life fearing God. That's the basis of this prayer. Secondly, the prayer life for preservation over the fear of foes, and finally, the glad life of godly fear. The psalmist here has God on the mind. That's a good place to be dwelling. God is in the center of this psalmist's song and of his thoughts. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation, he prays. Preserve my life, which is life with you, From the fear of the enemy. He goes on to speak of the enemy in some detail. But here, you see, is the doctrine that is being taught here and the basis for prayer to be delivered from the fear of man. It's a doctrine of the fear of God and a life of the God-fearers, something lost upon Christendom today. We hear of the God-lovers, and we want to know of the love of God, to be sure, but of the fear of God, there's little talk, I fear, from the pulpits, and little talk, therefore, in the congregations. God is to be feared. This is the call to worship that we had. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. And that's what fear of God is, reverence for God, whom you reverent. Whom you reverence, whom you esteem most highly, is the one you will fear. If you fear a man's strength, you will fear that man for his strength. If you fear such a thing that's going to happen, you'll be driven and compelled by that thing that you think is going to happen, and that will interfere with your looking at things biblically and fearing God. God is to be feared. He is holy. He is reverent. He is the God who made us to bow before him. And the psalmist is declaring that this is my God, my saving, loving God and Father in heaven. And I am God-fearing. And that's why the psalmist is saying to God and praying to God, preserve my life with you from the fear of the enemy. He's aware that the fear of the enemy doesn't fit in a life with fears god it's like saying there's two gods i'm going to fear the one jehovah god and i'm also going to fear the enemy or maybe you're having lots of gods depending on how many enemies you have it could be that at this time david was writing fearing saul who was seeking to kill David and lest he ascend to the throne instead of him. Or it could be that he was fearing and speaking of Absalom, his son, who was engaged in conniving for a rebellion. And a lot sounds like that in this text. There's conniving and words being spoken and whispered in secret to the undermining of the credibility of David and the overthrow of his kingdom. But be that as it may, commentators are disagreed. What David is doing here is praying with regard to something that doesn't fit, an attitude that does not fit, a dread that does not belong among those who have a life fearing God. David had the utmost respect for God. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel, and he is indeed that. Because he loves God, he would sing to God, he would live for God, he would play the harp for God, he would shepherd the sheep for God, he would be the king on behalf of God. He has utmost respect for him, and he fears no one and would fear no one and nothing else, not even himself. This is something we ought to remember. Our life is the life of the God-fearers. You are that, aren't you? You fear God, don't you? You fear lest you displease Him. You fear lest you transgress, and and this should be the greatest fear in your life, if you're going to fear anything besides God. Because you fear God and principally Him alone, you're fearing displeasing God. And you're fearing also displeasing displeasing men or those who are out to get you because God tells you, don't be afraid of them. Just fear me. Leave the enemies to me. And David is saying this, of course, as his child, the child of God. He's trusting in God. Even as your parents or your children look up to you, or your grandchildren look up to you, or your great-grandchildren look up to you. They respect you. There's a certain fear, lest grandma or the parents are are displeased with us, so we trust God and reverence him as a child does as parents and ought to seek to please him and so on. This is all this God-fearing life because there's this life with God that he cherishes and that he knows, a life with God. This is, after all, in the context of covenant, and we spoke of that somewhat this morning in the wilderness Israel was the covenant people. God was with them. And the consequence of that is that they are with God. And there's this mutual relationship they have. And and this is why there's this fear of God and this God-fearing life, because there's a life with God. Preserve my life with you from the fear of the enemy. The psalmist is praying. That's the life that's important, not just an earthly existence, but a life of fellowship and intimacy. And and how much more we on the other side of the New Testament and in the new dispensation celebrate that God-fearing life because of the life we have with God through Jesus Christ. And now I want to speak of seven things about this, seven points of life with God. It's through Jesus our life. The psalmist here in anticipation of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the son of David even, is anticipating and believing in the promise of Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one. He has Jesus the son on the mind even if he's not cognizant of all of the fullness of this revelation as we are, is faith in him, and there's grace in the Holy Spirit from him, and he knows forgiveness and peace with God. And so do we. This life with God is the root of our God-fearing life. And besides that, we know, especially this, that the life that we celebrate with God is a life that's within it's a life that's given to us so the psalmist can speak of the righteous being glad in the Lord. And we who know Jesus Christ and who have his spirit poured out can say, I live, but nevertheless not I, but Christ lives in me. There's this intimacy that we have with, with, with God through Jesus Christ, the life even of Jesus. And then, of course, it's the happy life. And as the psalmist even celebrates at the end of this psalm, the righteous shall be glad in the Lord, anticipating an answer to prayer that God will deliver him from enemies, not only but from the fear of enemies. He's anticipating gladness, and he knows what it is. If there's ever an instant, and we know if there's ever an instance where we're actually at peace with God and in conformity to our confession, we know this Gladness, don't we? I trust you do. The fruit of the Holy Spirit and love and joy it is. The fruit of the kingdom is love and joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. And so there's this life through Christ who is our life, this happy life, glad in the Lord. There's this God-trusting aspect of our life and fearing God is about this. There's a holy life too. The psalmist celebrates a holy life according to the word of God and he would not transgress that word and he would not act uh, in a way inconsistent with the holy life. Then he shines, of course, his life fearing God is so different from the world and he even boasts in God, does this psalmist who fears God because his life is with God As he says, all the upright in heart shall glory or brag about God. Similar to us, it should be who glory in the Lord, the Lord who is crucified for our sins, risen to the right hand of God, the fullness of the Godhead is revealed in him the brightness of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We know that life with God, don't we? We would fear and reverence this God who in sheer, unadulterated mercy has visited us, forgiven our sins, and released us From all the sins and the evil of this world. What a great gift it is. This life and this God-fearing life. Which in itself should be enough, shouldn't it? To eliminate all fear of man. and fear of fear. It's a great gift. Produces humility and obedience. By faith we read, Noah moved with fear, built the ark. And how often it's said in the Bible that God's people moved with fear, did this or that. Because you see, the fear of God based on this life with God instills a detestation of disobedience. It develops godly courage among, uh, among the elders. For example, in this congregation, godly fear encourages godly courage to stand up against the enemy and also against fear itself how this is needed in our day as it was in the psalmist because there is much to fear of the enemies of God and that's my second point here. The psalm is a prayer. It starts with a prayer that God would hear the voice of his servant in his meditation and he would preserve his life from the fear of the enemy. And that's what we need to pray. Our life as God's friends is threatened by enemies. Enemies of God. Enemies of Christ. Jesus says to the disciples, they hate me, they're going to hate you. The servant is not above his master. In this world you will have great tribulation, he says, Before, he says, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. In this world, great tribulation, and chief of that tribulation is the enemies of God. It's striking that the psalmist here, as in countless other psalms, brings out the enemy's weapon of choice, their cannonballs, their arrows, their swords specifically, and these are the words of the enemy. The words, the lies, the philosophies. Look at this. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, verse 2 from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words. That's it, isn't it? That's what we experience. And that's what we know and ought to know are the weapons of choice of all the media driven by the devil and all of the words of the wicked that might be soothing to us that are also driven by the devil. And they are words, arrows and swords and philosophies and lies and poison driven by the devil. James tells us in chapter 3 that the tongue is lit on fire of hell. Does't need a club does the devil so much if he has the words, just like in the beginning. "Yea hath God said." And you can imagine what the enemy was saying to David, "Yea hath God really anointed you. Look at what a mess up of a king you are. And Absalom, seeking to gain the hearts of the people, if that was the occasion, telling them, I can do a lot better than my dad. Look at my hair, it's so long, and I'll be much more popular than my dad, and I'll give you what you want. It's a war of words. It's a war of words. And so these enemies, with their words, they come and they fight like the devil with the devil's uh, weapons of choice. And What the psalmist is fearing, though, is the infiltration of the enemy. The infiltration, the effect of the enemy in the heart, in attitude, and thinking of the psalmist. This is what we ought to fear as well. It's one thing to have the enemy out there. But when the enemy's words are these piercing swords and bows and, 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 and arrows that come from bows ready to, to be aimed at us, and they hit us and they go into us and they go into our minds and they affect our minds. If we meet that not with the sword and the shield of the word of God and the fear of God itself, which drives out such a terrible uh, onslaught of the devil, we shall be infiltrated. The enemy will come in the camp. You ever had that happen? Enemies' lies are about you or someone else, and you start believing it. And you start thinking about the promises that that are made by this person or the innuendos that they make, and and you say, "Well, maybe that's true." And and they're talking maybe about you to somebody else, and 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 you're trying here to. Defend yourself on your own, and they take over the fear of God. You feared God in your better days and when you confessed your faith. And you were so excited for God and just to listen to God and to be influenced by the word of God as the psalmist was who said, Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. I'm thinking about you. And this is all the happy time in your life. And then there came these words. And you started to think about it. You started to think about the threat. backed off. And you're defeating the threat with a thus saith the Lord. So that what happens is the fear of man takes over. And the fear of God is put to the side. Someone wrote a book. Your God is too small. That's what happens here. Your God becomes too small in your mind, and man becomes too big, and man's threatening becomes too big for you to handle on your own. And you think even for God to handle. In this theory called Christianity and Reformed Christianity, it's not enough. We need to fight fire with fire. It's the only thing they'll listen to. They like lies. We're going to spread some lies. They slander me. We're going to just tilt the balance in favor of our reputation and in their disfavor. It happens so easily, doesn't it? The fear of man Crowds out the fear of God and fear even of transgressing. See what happens, and this happens to me a lot. I say this to my shame. What happens is, in the face of the enemies, and when fear begins to take over, this, this confession of Christ becomes crossless. We'll confess Him, but not to suffer with Him and to suffer to have our reputation maligned rather than transgress the commandments of God. We don't follow Jesus that far, do we? It's too scary. We are those whose God is too small for these times. And man becomes too big, and too, too large. It's a whole bondage, enslaving sort of process it is. And I fear that we can, we can be involved or we can be so infiltrated and our minds so infected about the fear of man that it, it, it takes over for a long time sometimes. The terrible thing is that when God is small, man becomes big and man's threats Haunt us, as one has said. And as this one goes on to say, when God is small and man is big, the expectations of man, they, they corner us. We're we driven then to please the man whom we're fearing, who says, this is what I want you to do for me to be on your good side. And we, we give them what they want, We say what they want, and the elders of the church say what people want to hear. We'll just compromise, and you can come in. It doesn't matter what sex you think you are or whom you marry and so on. You see how devastating this can be. We compromise in our homes. We compromise in our church. We compromise in our own conscience. When people then who... whom we're afraid of, are so influential in our life, we're afraid to disappoint people. We're afraid also that they're going to get angry. And see, what this is all about is control. We're controlled by what other people are saying. Fear takes over. And to use the, the positive and... And to contrast that with the positive of 2 Timothy 1, remember that says here, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Here's what happens. We who are of the spirit of Christ, now fearing man and fearing fear itself, are rendered powerless to that degree. We cave into the fear of man. We've been given a spirit of power. That is, power not just to live life in a reaction to things and to people and to opinions, but to please God alone. But this powerlessness whereby we're driven about by every wind of doctrine, okay, we'll go with that. By every opinion of a rich person who comes into the church and promises us money, okay, we'll take your money and we'll agree with what you want us to agree with. Fear of losing our children leads to compromise in the family. Fear of this and fear of that leads us to become a bundle of nerves instead of a powerhouse for God. That's how bad it is. When we say we have the Spirit of Christ, our life becomes Christless. Just a confession hanging from a rope or somehow attached to a confessional biblical church. And then, here's what happens. The opposite of spirit of Christ who gives love is that we start not loving. (laughs) Yes. Perfect love, John says, casts out what? Fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So you go to a person and you love them you don't hate them, and you don't malign them, but you're loving God in the midst of them and them, even if they're sinful, that's power, that's of the Holy Spirit. But if you're driven by the fear of man, there's no love anymore. It turns to hatred or it turns to a semblance of love and you like looking like you're loving, don't you? We like looking like we're loving. We like looking like we're a loving church when really we're not loving God first. It's fear of man. And the the great word of evangelicalism is all about love and love and love some more, and that means toleration to them. That means help us to be loosey-goosey here and to let everyone in and to have no walls in the church, no walls to let those who are mere sinners in, in the name of love. And then this, we are not given the spirit of fear, we're given the Holy Spirit of Christ, and therefore of power, and therefore of love, but also of a sound mind. That's interesting that the Bible at that point speaks of that, but it's, it's to be noted. What happens when we're fearing men And we're fearing monsters of men. We can make of them great monsters. And they become to us monstrosities because they take over our lives that were otherwise beautiful. And we become those who are so haunted and tormented by them in this fear of them and wanting to please them or avoid them or get even with them in some way or not that we can't think clearly Hence, we lose the sound mind. It's like we become insane. Here we have the Word of God, and God says, I'm your God, no fear. Fear me, I drive out the enemies. There is nothing that can conquer you. Well, when we say, God, no, you're not big enough, and your Word isn't true enough, well, you know what we're doing. We're ready to go to pine rest. We're insane. Then our religion is no longer this transformation of the mind, of the thinking. We no longer can attach doctrine to life or even interpret doctrine so it applies to life. We've lost our moorings We've lost every ground for biblical and confessional Christianity which, which doesn't leap at the newest thing or fear the newest threat, but which is steady as she goes because the Word of God is our anchor. And the promises of God in Jesus are everything. The psalmist here knows the great temptation. And he prays about it. Now there's a humble man. And I hope we're all humble today as we hear this word. We need to pray. We need to pray as the psalmist does that in the meditation of our heart that God would preserve our lives from the fear of man. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. And that, again, would include all the fears we have. But here we're focusing on the enemy. Preserve my life from the fear of the arrows, from the fear of the swords, from the fear of his cursings. Preserve my life, O God, and help me to remember your promises, which are that there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. There's nothing that can be against us, nothing... And if you think of it, that means all the enemies who are right up front, in front of you, right in your life, threatening your home, threatening your lifestyle, threatening your daughter or your son. The Bible says these people who are against you can't really be against you, not effectively. Trust me, he says. Trust me. Yes, their arrows are deadly, Yes, their swords are sharp, but God is our defense, and we have His Word. And you see, here's the contrast. The wicked have their words, bitter words, and their tongue is like a sword. But we have God's Word, the sword of the Spirit. We have Jesus Christ, who's come. The proof that God's word is true. That God's word is, I am with you and I don't just say that. I am that. And I'm with you always. Through thick and through thin, through life and in death, I'm your life, I'm your God after all. And this God, in fact, the psalmist celebrates though the evil encourage themselves in an evil matter and talk of laying snares secretly and and wonder who's going to ever see and so on, this God, verse 7, shall shoot at them with an arrow. One arrow. That's all he needs. And he never misses. God never misses his enemies and ours. Unless, of course, he's going to save them by our witness, and by our being reviled and yet not reviling again. But here the judgment of God is on the fore. God shall shoot at them with an arrow and suddenly they shall be wounded. So we will make them stumble over their own tongue, over their own lies. They'll be caught up in it. And all who see them shall flee away, all men shall fear. Sounds like Jesus when he comes again. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And beloved, let's remember all of those who confess and bow and so on. They're not just the elect, they're everyone who is compelled by God and the force of God. And the power of God and the judgment of God to say, yes, indeed. Only God is God. And here we thought we were fearsome. And they'll flee. And they'll want the mountains to fall on them. And say to the hills, cover us. So we pray. We pray that God would preserve our life and the fear of the enemies and the enemies themselves. And this leads finally to the glad life of godly fear <sighs> what a life yeah that life we've gone through the principle here at the bottom of this the godly life of the god-fearer who knows life with god and who wants to honor and respect god in his word and everything then we've consider the prayer The prayer that we need to make because we're helpless. We're helpless, aren't we? We're powerless. Our children are powerless. The devil's very smart and he's cunning and he's crafty and he has his allies and and we just have God. But we have God. So we can pray to him and be confident. So much so that we can make a conclusion and we should at the end of every one of our prayers the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him and all the upright in heart shall glory you see the idea here is that David comes full circle as he does in other psalms like Psalm 42 hope thou in God the deer's panting after the water books and what's going on here and finally he says hope thou in God here it is too I'm fearing fear I'm fearing enemies God is my help and he's the help by the way of all the righteous, all the justified sinners in Jesus Christ in whom now dwells the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, the spirit of the risen Savior. That's for you, beloved. That's the spirit for you. And this is the life, the glad life of godly fear for you in the Lord. The righteous shall be glad and In the Lord and trust in Him. This is the psalmist's great hope and great trust and great boast in the Lord. This is true, though the battle rages. I'm not going to kid you from this pulpit, the battle rages. The battle rages in our churches in the United Reformed Churches. The slander goes on between churches, ministers, and so on, as it does in many other churches, true and false. The battle rages. The devil is relentless. The devil is not to be trusted. The devil comes and he's a roaring lion or he's a whispering snake with words Dipped in poison darts of hell. Fear not, even though the battle rages. In fact, as we pray, we should be meditative. This is practical wisdom here. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. You know, the way to meditate. Is not to think of the world. The whole world. Don't think of the world. Just the Word. Just the Word. Just what God says. And if your thoughts go astray from that or vary just a little, don't think you're being creative now and wiser than God. Go back to the Word, to the law and to the testimony, to the gospel, to the central message of God with us and the promises. And the holiness of God, the claims of God, and the Christ of God. Meditate upon that word. Even though the enemy uh, seems to be gaining a foothold, and you're sure he's whispering about you and he's gaining a following, don't go back to him the same way he comes at you. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be wise and humble and trusting. That's the way of giving God the glory, though in host and camp against you. So nothing to fear but fear itself, no one to fear but God himself. This is our joy. This is our freedom. This is our life and our peace now and every step of the way home. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would give us to know the joy that we can so easily lose. Because our fear shifts from you to to man, to the future, or to anything about which we tremble and have dreads. God, we pray Give us a simplicity of faith of children who cling to God and who climb into the lap of their Father and who are secure though the world goes to hell. Give us to be like those children. Restore to us, Lord, a childlike faith and a conviction that says, I'm going to, to leave my terrors in the night and in the day and all around to the God who is God and over all and my God for Jesus' sake. Bless this congregation, Heavenly Father, everyone, every family, in every season of life. Bless those who visit with us and who befriend us and who would join with us Give us all to know your peace and the power, the power of the endless life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.